This is Father Patrick Brisk. This is Father Gregory Pine. This is Father Jacob Bertrand Jancic. And welcome to God's Planning. Thanks to all those who support us. If you enjoy our show, please consider making a monthly donation on Patreon. Be sure to like and subscribe to God's Planning wherever you listen to your podcasts. So I figured we'd start off this Lexio episode, this special edition of our Lenten meditations on the Sunday readings, by asking about our biggest Lenten mistakes. What, what is the worst penance we've done? And I'll go first, just to show that I'm not above this, right? So when I was a freshman in college at Hanover in southern Indiana, I decided to be a vegetarian for Lent. <laughs> and uh, that, that, that was extraordinarily difficult, I will say. And then at the end of Lent, after the Easter Vigil, uh, some friends and I went to the little burger shack in downtown Madison, Indiana. It's a cool little place. And I pounded a bunch of sliders, nice little hamburgers. And that was a very poor decision because my body was not prepared for hamburger. Um. That's that's wonderful. We know what sliders are. Thanks, Father Patrick. You didn't have to define what a slider was. Uh, but are those like little hot dogs? What a slide is. Um, I guess we'll save Father Gregory for last because I'm sure his are the worst, the dumbest decisions. So we'll save that for last. Um, oh, I had one now. I just forgot it. We might have to go to Father Gregory. Oh no, I remember. This was just a couple years ago. Um, I did Exodus ninety a couple years ago. Uh, worst decision Ooh. of my life. Cold showers. I oh gosh, nope. I mean my the regularity with which I was bathing decreased. I mean not to the point where it's like unseemly, <laughs> but like the moral fortitude that it took for me to get into that shower. There were times. There were a couple times when I went to take a shower and I couldn't do it. Like I didn't. I put the water on and I turned it off and said, "No, I can't do that." So that that was rough. That was. I'll never do that again. So more power to you if you're taking cold showers. Bless. Bless up. Um, I don't, I don't have like a, a, a glorious or a glamorous one offhand. There was a Lent that I gave up my bed, which was miserable. Um, I had like long debates as Wait, to whether I would give sleep? up my pillow. Um, so what I did was I flipped like up the mattress the and I slept on the slat board, which was also <laughs> a bad idea. But, you know, life's crazy. But when you have the opportunity to tell someone else's penance, I always seize that opportunity. Because one time in the student tape, I was like the guy who brought meals to people who were sick in bed, should that ever happen, which was pretty rare. But I remember getting a phone call on the Thursday after Ash Wednesday from a brother much beloved of us whose name I will not mention on account of the fact that I don't want to embarrass him too terribly. But uh, he called me and he left an almost completely incoherent message, which sounded a little bit like this. Uh, uh, Gregory, it's... Let's just call this person, theoretically, Edmund, for instance. Okay, it's Edmund. Uh, Don't worry about me. I just gave up coffee, uh, cold turkey, and I'll be back at prayers probably soon. (laughs) Now, I don't know who you're talking about, but I remember some people drinking coffee like, like it was oxygen in the student tape. So if this was one of those people, I mean... It was, he, he needed to be like institutionalized for that detox. <laughs> Holy cow. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was pleased to receive that message. I saved it. I listened to it from time to time just to warm the cockles of my heart. Woo. Beautiful. Well, if you're one of our listeners that tuned in for something spiritual, let's uh, go ahead and tune in to the uh, readings for the second Sunday of Lent. We'll begin by praying the collect together. Let us pray. 
O God, who have commanded us to listen to your beloved Son, be pleased, we pray, to nourish us inwardly by your word, that with spiritual sight made pure, we may rejoice to behold your glory. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, God forever and ever. Amen. Father Gregory, do you want to take us into the first reading? A reading from the book of Genesis. The Lord took Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars if you can. Just so, he added, shall your descendants be. Abraham, or Abram, put his faith in the Lord, who credited it to him as an act of righteousness. He then said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as a possession. O Lord God, he asked, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He answered him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old she-goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brought him all these, split them in two, and placed each half opposite the other. But the birds he did not cut up. Birds of prey swooped down on the carcasses, but Abram stayed with them. As the sun was about to set, a trance fell upon Abram, and a deep, terrifying darkness enveloped him. When the sun had set and it was dark, there appeared a smoking firepot and a flaming torch, which passed between those pieces. It was on that occasion that the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I give this land, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river the Euphrates. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When we hear these stories from... Um the book of Genesis or other parts of the Old Testament, there are often a lot of details that are, um, I don't know, kind of might cause like consternation or questions about like, what is going on with all these details about the three-year-old heifer and the three-year-old she-goat and splitting them down the middle, but not splitting up the birds and all. It It's a lot. And it's a lot to sort of especially without context of, of understanding sort of Israelite or Jewish um, sacrifice tradition that came out of these things in the temple, you know, without the context, it can just be a lot. But um, the point of what is, what is happening here is, is what, we hear, uh, what we hear in the end, the sort of summary of, of what the Lord is doing. It was on this occasion, it says in the book of Genesis, it was on that occasion that the Lord made a covenant with Abram. When we think about... Um, what it is that we, who it is that we are as Christians, and and what it is that we pursue, and what it is that we attempt to live by our Lord's grace, a life of virtue, pursuing the good, um, that that only makes sense. It only works if if there's a sort of reliable um, reality that under that underpins all that we do, and there is, of course, and that's that's God. God is. Um, God is God himself, so he's true to his word, but God also wants us to know that he is true to what he promises. And so to do that, he creates a covenant, and he does so over and again throughout the Old Testament, um, and even the new covenant in Jesus Christ. He creates these covenants um, so that we uh, so that we understand time and again in different forms and in different ways that God's promise, God's promises to us are reliable. God is true to his word. He does so in these, I guess we could say, these strange ways that would be strange to us, as we read in the book of Genesis, um, so that we can also see, so that we can have kind of evidence that God, that God is uh, creating an everlasting covenant. He does so that, that so that we might believe and kind of witness through throughout the the centuries of relationship with God that He 
creates a covenant. He creates a promise that only exists because he is reliable, because he is true, because he is God. And in that covenant, we can look forward to the new covenant that arises in Christ, that that comes to fruition of the cross and completion in the resurrection, um, that we can trust. We sort of have this evidence to trust God, to, to rely on him, to invest ourselves in him in, in a way that's sure and lasting and altogether reliable. Yeah, the uh, to pick up on the thread that you mentioned there, some 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 of the things can be difficult to bear, and you mentioned all the tradition of sacrifice. I think the weirdest part of this reading is when the flaming, or excuse me, foking, smoking fire pot. There we go, smoking fire pot and flaming torch appear and pass through the pieces of the sacrifice. You just imagine this sort of like Halloween boiling cauldron and a torch moving through the pieces of the sacrifice. Which is uh, which is pretty incredible. Now I have no idea what the pot might symbolize. That smoking fire pot. I have z- I have zero idea what that means. Um, but the torch, I do see something really beautiful in. Um, so to pick up on what you were mentioning, Father Jacob Bertrand, um, that God comes to reveal Himself. This is the most Im- this is the most important theme of the Scriptures, right? Is that it's God's unveiling of of His own self to us. The torch represents uh, in the West um, learning a kind of knowing about uh, about the world, uh, or in this case, about God, that the flaming torch passing through the sacrifice is an invitation to Abram to know him. Uh, so when God makes a promise to Abram, he's not only revealing truths about the universe, the universe or the promise of his destiny, uh, but he is revealing things about himself. He's revealing who he is as God, that he is to be worshipped, and that he can be known and loved by Abram. So when we see the torch pass through the sacrifice, we can think of our own Dominican torch, right, which symbolizes our desire to make God known. Um, St. Dominic's preaching with the little dog that ran around the world and set the world on fire. Uh, but any other, any other instance of a torch is about bringing light and God bringing clarity and knowledge of himself. So one of the lines from this particular reading that struck me was the question that Abram poses, namely, O Lord God, he asked, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And I suppose the reason for which it struck me is uh, I've been reading some stuff recently about how you know that you know, which, yeah, it can become a kind of strange academic enterprise because most people don't care too terribly much that they know that they know. But on a basic level, it's not enough to have a thing. You have to know that you have a thing. So say, you know, like you, you think that you've lost your grandmother's engagement ring. It turns out it's actually in the second drawer on the right. And it's there. So you, you possess it in a certain sense. But you have to know that you possess it in order to enjoy fully your possession of that thing. And the way in which God responds to this, you know, is in part by this, this sacrifice that's described here. But the sacrifice is an enactment of the covenant. And that covenant is repeated time and time again in the book of Genesis, specifically to Abram become Abram. So in Genesis 12, in Genesis 15, like we just read, in Genesis 17, in Genesis 20, in Genesis 22, God's always reaffirming the fact of the promise. He's always reaffirming the fact of the covenant. So God's response to our anxiety regarding like whether we, whether we know that we possess the thing that he says that we possess is just to continue coming back to us with it, to continue reaffirming it. And I, I think about our own you know, practices as Christians, as Catholics. This is one of the great gifts 
that we have in the Eucharist, that if you ever doubt, as it were, you know, like the love that, have, that God has for you, or the, or the potency of that love for you, you just return to the sacrament. You just return to the sacrament of confession, reconstituted in the state of grace, return to the sacrament of the altar, you know, fortified and filled in charity. So if we fear that, you know, we, we, we can't know what we possess, or we don't know what we possess, the Lord responds always by showing up, by continuing to show up in word and in sacrament. With that then, let's turn to the second reading. A reading from the letter of St. Paul to the Philippians. Join with others in being imitators of me, brothers and sisters, and observe those who conduct themselves according to the model you have in us. For many, as I have often told you and now tell you even in tears, conduct themselves as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their minds are occupied with earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we also await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will change our lowly body to conform with his glorified body by the power that enables him also to bring all things into subjection to himself. Therefore, my brothers and sisters whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm, I'm struck by the word imitators. Uh, and part of the reason for which I am struck is because I'm writing my dissertation on imitation. Here's the thing <laughs> I want to talk about. <laughs> Look at this. <laughs> Woo! Okay, so I was just writing a piece of chapter four today about why it's fitting that the Son took human flesh. Like, why not the Father? Why not the Holy Spirit? And one of the ways in which St. Thomas answers the question is that he takes the personal names of the second person of the Most Blessed Trinity and shows how it's fitting that, you know, the, the second person of the Most Blessed Trinity take human flesh in light of that fact for the end of salvation. So like the Word, why is it fitting that the Word take human flesh? Why is it fitting that the Son take human flesh? And one of these is, why is it fitting that the image take human flesh? Because the Lord, I mean, the second person of the Most Blessed Trinity is referred to properly as image. He's the, the image of the invisible God. And St. Thomas draws this connection between image and imitation. All right, so how is it that we partake of salvation? Well, we imitate God, which is to say we're gradually assimilated to God or we're gradually conformed to God. But when the knowledge of God is difficult and we can only arrive at it, after much striving and with the admixture of much error, it can be dispiriting this endeavor of trying to imitate God. And so the image, who is, you know, who imitates the Father perfectly, takes human flesh, which is to say he adopts the human nature of we who are made to the image of God, and he, he affects that movement of the image to the exemplar in his own flesh. So he, who is our kind of pattern, as it were, our kind of model of what it means to be in God or to be holy, actually accomplishes in us and for us, as it were, this movement towards the God from whom we have come and to which we need return. And the, the logic of the incarnation is so strong, is so profound, that it continues to resonate through the material world. So we know, of course, that, that we have access to this by faith and by sacrament. Um, but in truth, it can actually transform human beings such that they become vessels of God's revelation of himself and of God's drawing us back to himself by this act of imitation. So I think that that should give us a kind of confidence that not only are we, you know, like good people who do stuff apart from God, but that God can actually act through us as his instruments 
to bring about this work of imitation. So we can say with St. Paul and not be totally overblown about it, like imitate me as I imitate God. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Because the, the logic of the incarnation is meant to be worked out. It's meant to be, uh, I don't know, tailored to every nook and cranny of creation. And part of that story is us because there are certain places uh, to, to which we are sent or certain persons to whom we are sent. And we need to be able to say to them, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Like, if you remember last week, like last week, uh, the first Sunday of Lent, St. Paul's, um, there's, the second reading is taken from one of St. Paul's letters. And St. Paul, again, kind of gives away the ending. If we begin, we began last week with a reading from Deuteronomy, this week a reading from Genesis, and St. Paul, yet again, gives away the sort of ending to the season of Lent. Um, and here, as Father Gregory has been talking about, um, this this imitation that of, of being made like Christ, St. Paul says that he will change our lowly body and conform with it, to conform with his glorified body by the power that enables him also to bring all things into subjection to himself. This points to uh, for uh, points out for us yet again um, that the the promise God has made, the covenant God has made through Christ in the new covenant, um, and if that covenant, then the way by which we ought to direct our lives by his grace, that if God has promised something for our lives, namely to share in his divine life, then our lives ought to be ordered to participating, to imitating Christ in his divine life. Of course, that's nothing we can do on our own, but is something that we do with and through our Lord's our Lord's grace. And if we think about the season of Lent, then, in this context of imitation, of participation, of being transformed by this grace, um, the idea of, of the penitential practices begins to make a bit more sense, that we root out those things that inhibit us from our imitation, uh, from our participation, that those things that would distract us, whether, as St. Paul says, uh, our stomachs, whether those be our idols or our destruction, you know, whatever those idols might be that cause us to stumble in our imitation of Christ be rooted out. The beauty is that we are allowed and we're given the ability to participate in that rooting out of, of vice and um, of, of weakness and those sort of things with the help of grace that we have the ability to, to reject temptation, to reject Satan in Christ's name and to be conformed to him. And we ought to take every confidence in that. St. Paul is reminding us of that um, in, in Christ. We ought to have every confidence to uh, pick up a little bit on both of those threads i think what's extraordinary is that um uh christ is not christ is not jealous he's given us others to help us learn to imitate him um that in in the uh in the love and the generosity of the word of the son he gives us others who help us see ideals of christ and help us be more conformed to him so paul for example can say boldly be imitators of me and be be like i am uh, because I'm trying to be like Christ, and that this makes sense to us as Christians. This is not a, this is not a horrible thing. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, and this is uh, one of the places I think that we can look to as a, an encouragement in the New Testament to look to the lives of the saints to to imitate them. So if we so if we hear stories of the saints, uh, we we ought to begin to live like them without thinking that we're crazy, uh, you know. So so the idea of taking on a, a penance uh, on imitating a saint is not some kind of insane, uh, necessarily some kind of insane thing from medieval past, but being intentional about um, how we pray, the, the form of life that we've taken, how, how, we're, how we're ordering, organizing our life, 
um, that an imitation of the saints uh, is not distracted from an imitation of Christ, but a movement towards a more complete uh, conformity to the image of Christ. Um, and that this is not this is not unscriptural. This is not unchristian. This is deeply scriptural. This is deeply Christian, and it comes right here from Saint Paul, showing us uh, showing us how, how broad the the pool is. And so, with that, let's go ahead, Father Jacob Bertrand, and head into the gospel. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Jesus took Peter, John, and James and went up the mountain to pray. While he was praying, his face changed in appearance, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were conversing with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his exodus that he was going to accomplish in Jerusalem. Peter and his companions had been overcome by sleep, but becoming fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As they were about to part from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he did not know what he was saying. While he was still speaking, a cloud came and cast a shadow over them, and they became frightened when they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my chosen son. Listen to him. After the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. They fell silent and did not at the time tell anyone what they had seen. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, one of the things that I find so remarkable about this is uh, the question that St. Thomas Aquinas asked, which is, what did the apostles really see? Uh, And one of the answers that he gives, I can't cite the locus, is that he thinks that this vision of Christ is a vision of Christ's glorified body, um, which is pretty interesting because that involves lots of cool time travel. Um, and I think that's so extraordinary because the Lord uh, is bothering to give his closest friends a foretaste, a promise, a comfort, a consolation uh, of what is to come. So that when we're distressed by the apostles, the disciples' absence during the Passion, it has a, it has a context. Like Christ tried to give them uh, a comfort or a consolation, right, that, that they were not able to fully understand until the spirit comes and and uh, allows the, the the whole project of our redemption to be known uh, but i think that's so amazing to think of the way that christ provided for his beloved friends and then to see that uh, to ask the lord to be shown that in our own lives okay so if we're going up uh to, to have a kind of moment to be with the lord we can ask him um let me know what I need to know to be able to bear the suffering well with you, right? So if we're facing a particular trial, particular temptation in our lives, we can go to Christ to be with him and ask him to sustain us, to give us a, a, a consolation, just a little taste of what's going what's gonna to come, um, to be able to, to bear that suffering well with him. So one of the reasons that I love this particular passage uh, recounting the transfiguration, the kind of height of our Lord's miraculous ministry in the Gospels, is that it shows us the end. And you often hear this said that our Lord is transfigured before those three of his closest disciples so as to fortify them in anticipation of the difficulty which they will endure in his passion and death and his burial, his descent to the dead especially. Um, So it's to kind of give them an anticipation of the resurrection so that they have a vague sense at least of the hope that lies in store. Um, but I think that 
In addition to showing what lies in store for him, it also shows what lies in store for us. And sometimes in Christian conversations, you get the impression that the goal for a Christian is to speak less and repress more and kind of stay out of the way and not say things that are offensive and certainly not use swear words. Um, but that's just, that's just decidedly not the case. The point of the Christian life isn't to avoid sin. The point of the Christian life is to do great good for the love of God and for the salvation of souls in whatever way the Lord disposes. Um, I, I recall our novice master, Father James uh, Sullivan, saying that if the goal of the Christian life were to not sin, then we would do well to die immediately after our baptism, right? Like there'd be no point in living the life out. But our Lord does live the life out, and he shows us the reason for which we live the life out, which is so that we can kind of fire on all cylinders, so we can come to the height of the power which we have, not a, not a, well, it's, we have an obediential potency for. Thank you for theological jargon, Father Gregory. Basically, like, we're, we're, we're never going to be like, you know what I really need right now? I need grace. But when God reveals it to us, we're like, holy smokes, that is exactly what I've been desiring my whole entire life. Because by virtue of the fact that we're made to the image of God, there's a, there's a movement at work in our lives. And that movement is intended to, to fructify. So from the image of creation, we proceed to this image of recreation, which is to say we live the life of grace and we seek to live it more and more habitually and actually. But ultimately, we're destined for what St. Thomas calls the image of similitude. We are to be like God, right? You are sons of God, all right? You are like unto gods and sons of the Most High. You know, we are to be partakers of the divine nature. You can cite a bunch of passages on this theme. But this is the goal for us. We see it in Christ's flesh. He imparts it to ours. And that helps us to take, you know, to take the next step here in our Lenten journey. One of the things that we need to be, I guess, completely or repeatedly um, encountering or seeing or hearing is is to be um, to take courage and to you know to take strength in in the Lord to the reminders that. Um, God is God, and God created us for uh, for our participation in His life, as Father Gregory was explaining, um, and that that He offers that. It's for some reason it's just easy to forget. We, you know, life becomes tough, things are difficult, things are chaotic, and it's easy to forget that our Lord is is who He says He is and is who He promises to be. And this moment that our Lord invites Peter, James, and John into in the Transfiguration is is certainly an incredible moment and a unique moment. I don't think we all have, um, we, we all won't experience this sort of thing. Of course, you know, it's it's only Peter, James, and John who experience the transfiguration, but that doesn't mean that our Lord doesn't reveal himself and reveal who he is to us in, in different ways in our own lives. And part of our growth in the Christian life and in relationship with him is becoming more and more attuned or sensitive or kind of whatever, whatever, uh, however we want to describe it, but to be able to recognize the way by which our Lord continually reveals his goodness and his love in our lives, to recognize that, but not simply to see it, but to respond to it. Um, as Father Patrick has talked about, to respond to it in such a way that like, it, it makes a difference in how we live as Christians. Um, it makes a difference in how we approach the, the world and how we approach our sufferings and our joys. Um, when we begin to see our Lord in, in, in all things, but especially in ways that he desires to reveal himself to you as a particular beloved son or daughter of, of the Father. Um, 
we ought to trust that our God is is a great revelator, a great revealer of himself, and wants us to know him. That's, as Father Gregory was saying, that's that's the end of our lives. That's the point of our existence, to share in his life and to know him. Um, so, though we may not experience something as as incredible as the transfiguration, nonetheless, our Lord does um, give himself to us in ways that we can that we can see if we kind of tune ourselves into into him um, and into what he's doing in our lives so let's conclude our lexio here uh, our time together praying through these second readings for uh, well these readings for the second sunday of lent with these words bless your faithful we pray o lord with a blessing that endures forever keep them faithful to the gospel of your only begotten son so that they may always desire and at last attain that glory whose beauty he showed in his own body to the amazement of his disciples. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thanks again to all of our supporters. If you'd like to tithe to our work, check us out at patreon.com slash godsplaining. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all the things. Like, subscribe, leave a five-star review. That really helps us. That helps people discover the podcast and supports our work. Visit godsplaining.org to shop our merch, get dates and information for upcoming Godsplaining events. Thanks and know above all of our prayers for you, and we ask your prayers for us. God bless.